Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my intrepid friend, colleague, and co-host, who is uh, looking out for his health and well-being and bodily warmth today, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What's up, Brian? It was negative 27 when I got up this morning, and so I thought a hat was in order for most of the day. It doesn't matter how airtight your house is, um, negative 27 is still cold. That is no joke. Uh, I can attest to that. It's been a while since I've been uh, I've been in uh, a location that cold, but um, my my hat is off to you as you have your hat on today to to weather the the cold uh, to brave the elements for the podcast today. Uh, so thank you as always for doing your best to um, go go above and beyond as you always do. So thank you. Um, My pleasure, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, welcome to everybody to the pod, to the latest episode of the pod. Thanks to everybody who listened to our Russia extravaganza. Not surprisingly, there's going to be some more Russia content today uh, for anybody who hasn't been living in a hole in the ground for the last couple of weeks. Um, before we get to the agenda for today, the usual message to start, we're not giving legal advice. We're not sharing any confidential information, any and all information that you hear and opinions that you hear are mine and Tim's. Um, even though they may be impacted to some degree by the extreme cold, they are still entirely our own and you can blame us if you disagree with them. Uh, if you enjoy the pod, spread the word, uh, please subscribe, give us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating and get us anywhere you find your pod content. Um, and let's, uh, let's get on with it. So, um, Again, not surprisingly, uh, we are we are going to start with some more Russia. We're gonna not really rehash uh, all the ground we covered last time because we obviously spent a lot of time on Russia, but a few discrete issues that I think warrant more discussion that we're gonna cover right at the top. In particular, the um, recent announcement about the potential deployment of the foreign direct product rule uh, with respect to Russia. Uh, in a somewhat novel, though not entirely novel way. So we're going to start with that. Um, we're going to then go to one of our, our other favorite topics, which is Iran, and in particular, whether um, it is truly now or never for JCPOA 2.0, as it as it, it appears to be, um, perhaps. We declared JCPOA 2.0 dead, essentially, on our year-end podcast last year. So uh, we'll see if that is right or wrong, but we're going to talk about that a bit. And then we're going to talk about a recent development in a pretty high-profile prosecution of an MIT professor, um, it, which was just announced last week, a dismissal of an indictment against him, and whether that may signal the end of DOJ's so-called China initiative. Um, so we're going we're gonna to hit on that. That's been a while since we've talked about that, so we'll, we'll come back to that. And then in the lightning round, we're going to hit two... Um, topics very briefly. We're going to go back to some Helms-Burton-related litigation. We haven't talked about any of the the, um, the Helms-Burton um, lawsuits in quite some time because most of them have kind of petered out. There's a notable one in Florida that's still going against some of the major cruise lines. We're going to talk about that briefly. And then we're going to end with late-breaking news that just came out today, which is um, the multi-agency business advisory that was just issued today relating to dealings with Burma. Um, and that'll be our show for today. So before we brave the cold to get back into more Russia-related talk, any any thoughts, Tim? Any uh, 
Any uh, just before we get started? Russia all the time. To paraphrase the Brady Bunch, Russia, 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 Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. That is indeed. Or Marsha, 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 Marsha. For those out there who are too young to remember the Brady Bunch, Tim <laughs> provided. Some I helpful, just dated myself. Helpful, helpful guidance. Um, <laughs> the uh, so yeah, so let's so let's jump right into it. So topic number one, we're going to start with Russia again. And as I said, we're not going to rehash everything that we covered the last time in terms of what could be coming on the sanctions front. What we really want to do is. Um, kind of pivot to some new developments that have trickled out over the last few days. So uh, last weekend, there was a, uh, an article in the Washington Post. I think they officially broke this news that the U.S. government is thinking about imposing a, an, a uh, again, somewhat novel, although not entirely unprecedented use of the export control rules to really inflict some pain on Russia. And the way it was described and the way that it has subsequently been described by some senior U.S. government officials and some press availability is that they would essentially deploy something akin to the the way that they have um, implemented the special foreign direct product rule with respect to Huawei and the Huawei entities that are on the entity list, which as all of you out there, I'm sure, recall and know all too well, relates not only to extending the reach of the EAR um, beyond its normal scope, but in particular to, uh, with respect to the foreign direct product rule, um, doing that in a way that will impact factories where there will be, and facilities, and in this case, fabs that manufacture semiconductors with particular um, types of U.S. Uh, origin software technology and equipment. And so what has what was cited in the one example that was cited in the US uh, in the Washington Post article in particular was the idea and of course the and the idea here is again rather than just targeting one company and and the affiliates that are on the entity list with this type of rule this would potentially be broadly targeted at Russia and in particular, some strategic industries in Russia that are um, heavily reliant on on chips and semiconductors that would likely fall under the coverage of this expanded rule, namely civil aviation, maritime, certain high technology sectors like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and other kind of military industrial type um enterprises and industries that are very strategically important to the Russian regime and in particular to Vladimir Putin. So this would really kind of hit them where it would hurt more so, not not more so, but in a different way than the OFAC sanctions that we talked about um, primarily the last time. So I want to, um, and again, this is, and, and as it's being reported, this is something that's being discussed very closely with allies and others um, to ensure that whatever is rolled out is coordinated in a way so as not to adversely impact interests that are um, aligned with the U.S. and would be very laser focused and targeted just on these Russian industries that I mentioned. And the one example that they pulled out in the Washington Post article, which I think is a useful one to bear in mind, is the idea that, and as, again, anybody who follows this knows, um, when the special Huawei foreign direct product rule was rolled out by the Commerce Department back in 2020, um, TSMC, which is, of course, one of the largest chip manufacturers in the world and 
Huawei was a huge uh, and was a huge supplier for Huawei, it basically um, concluded that they could not supply Huawei any longer or largely could not supply Huawei consistent with the restrictions that were imposed by the new foreign direct product rule. And of course, they, you know, there, there have been a lot, a lot of things in the news about um, not necessarily TSMC, but others in the supply chain coming to commerce, trying to get licenses. Uh, we're aware of at least a few instances where that was successful, but by and large, the licensing requirement that would be now imposed with a policy of denial, presumption of denial, uh, would make it practically impossible to supply these industries in Russia if this type of rule were actually implemented here. So with that, there are still so many question marks in terms of what's going to happen with Russia and Ukraine, obviously. Uh, a lot of a lot of noise, a lot of blunders, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of war of words flying back and forth between a lot of different countries and a lot of different parties over the last few weeks. But with this in particular, Let's start here. I think we'll cover a couple other new wrinkles to this, but let's start here. Tim, what are your what are your reactions to this? How do you think this could play out? Do you think this would be um, workable from the U.S. side, and how is this going to impact how is this going to impact people more broadly than just the Russian government? So it's interesting because it does seem to try and hit Putin where it hurts. Um, it, it, as I've heard the policy described by some of the administration officials, they've essentially taken these, the, this, this growth area or this modernization area of the Russian economy that, that President Putin has singled out as critical to Russian growth and has been trying to kind of build you know, AI and, uh, you know, quantum computing and that sort of um, infrastructure in the Russian economy and, and said, you know, and all, all of which or much of which comes from U.S. origin technology and said, we're going to cut this off. Like, you're not going to be able to get it anymore if you cross the line into Ukraine. And, and that, in, in theory, is a very potentially effective policy. Um, it, it, and, and it's one that, that I heard the, the policymakers describe as a medium-term policy. So it's not going to have an effect right away. But in terms of Russia's growth and in terms of Russia's building, building of infrastructure, um, it's simply not going to have the possibility of, of – um, uh, it's not going to have the possibility of, of, of being immediate, but it will, will prevent – you know, longer term growth or medium term growth in those sectors. So it could be very, very effective. I think it's going to have to be combined with other policies. And I also think that um, the, the test of this, because it's, you know, foreign direct product rule for enforcement purposes, you're going to need a lot of support from the allies. So to the extent that these products are being built in Europe with U.S. origin technology, if the allies aren't unanimously in support of it, or at least, you know, a, a great majority of them in support of it, um, it will there'll be enforcement challenges because gauging whether or not U.S. origin technology um, is is really sufficient is within these products and, and whether these are the products that are subject to the rule for, for essentially an export that's coming from a different country other than the U.S., it, it could be difficult to enforce unless you get a, got a lot of cooperation from other countries. Right. And I think that's a great point to, to highlight because obviously I mentioned TSMC in Taiwan, a country that is very heavily invested in staying on the good side of the U.S., especially as a buffer between it and China. Um, China, though, I think is the interesting kind of, you know, 
shadow player behind this because to the extent that there is alternative supply to be found it's probably coming from china and there's already there's a lot of data that's out there and a lot of reporting on this that russia's already sourcing a lot of its tech and a lot of its um and, and a lot of these types of items from china and uh, so it'll be interesting to see if China, you know, just happily kind of comes in to fill the void there, which I'm sure they will try to. Again, this is not a overnight. You will see the results of this. This is a. It will take a little time for this to play out, given the way supply chains work and given the whatever will be built into the the rollout of the rule in terms of a buffer and and perhaps a wind down period. I I will also say that related to this, there's some talk about even. So this, I think, is the big one from the strategic cutting off, choking off Russian um, industry, key Russian industries from these ty this type of technology and these types of chips. And, and again, I think it is not really disputed that Russia just doesn't have the capability to kind of you gin up alternate supply domestically, right? They're going to have to go somewhere else. To Tim's point, if that's Europe, hopefully the European allies are well aligned with the U.S. and and that won't happen. If it's China, then that's a different story, and and we assume that there will just be a pivot to even a harder pivot to China than there already has been. But the other piece is this not this rule to some degree, but then even more broadly, there has been noise in the past couple of weeks about essentially just an export ban to Russia that would be would resemble something akin to what we have with Cuba and Iran and, and other countries with very narrow carve outs that would, you know, this this foreign direct product rule extension if it is if it is put into effect or implemented would potentially trickle down to many products that are not necessarily intended to be caught by it or or, or not the primary strategic you know objective of this of this rule but might extend to consumer electronic goods and other things like that that are going to more broadly impact the russian people um, but then there's also talk of this broader export ban that might go into place and that's at least being considered as well um and so i don't know what your what your thoughts are on that or or how you you know it's it's i, I think to some degree it's hard to the the hardest thing right now i think is deciphering kind of um you know it's a little bit of a signal from the noise kind of problem right because there is a lot of big talk that's going on on both sides on all sides not just the us and russia but on the allied side as well in an effort to have some deterrent effect to, to prevent the invasion of Ukraine, right? Um, and so what actually plays out and what happens on the ground literally will impact obviously what tools and what measures are going to be taken. And then also uh, when push comes to shove, what is going to be palatable and not palatable in terms of the collateral consequences that come from the more coercive economic measures that the U.S. is willing to take, whether it be imposition of economic sanctions or imposition of export controls that could really choke off certain aspects of the Russian economy. So I think that's a really hard thing to know right now in terms of what that will look like. But what are your thoughts on that sort of broader export ban, which would really be quite a which would be quite a that would be quite a dramatic step as well. Well, I think like the, the export controls, a lot of its success or failure is going to boil down to whether the allies go along. And, you know, with respect to a, a pretty, you know, targeted export control like the that we've heard talked about, 
Um, that strikes me as having some chance, chance of success on a multilateral basis because other countries could get on board with that. That's really not that much different from where U.S. law is now. It just would be a change in licensing policy, but it, it would would otherwise be you know relatively continuous, and other countries you know could probably be persuaded to go along with it because of the U.S. nexus. I think an export ban is is different than many countries. You know, embargoes are really the U.S. is one of the few countries in the world that actually does embargoes. Most other countries, certainly Western Europe, they don't do embargoes. They do lists often, they'll do export controls, but a full-fledged export cutoff is something that will be very difficult to persuade the allies to go along with, in part because that's not really how they operate usually, but also because, you know, from the U.S. perspective, Russia is a relatively minor trading partner. For a lot of the European con- countries, Russia is, you know, one of its bigger trading partners. And I'm thinking here, you know, largely of Germany, but there are, you know, the rest of the EU trades with Russia quite a bit, at least compared to the United States. And so getting um, other countries to go along with this will be difficult. I think that if you can't get other countries to go along with this, so if the U.S. imposes an Iran-type scenario where, you know, there's these primary sanctions um, from the U.S., um, but nobody else goes along, what you'll have is the situation you were just talking about with respect to China, but kind of multiplied. That is, essentially, the U.S. will will drop out of the Russian economy from a trading standpoint, but others will step in, and not only the Chinese, but the Western Europeans, too, if they won't go along with an export ban. And so, at the end of the day, it may not be very effective if you impose an entire you know export ban, because Russia can make up the slack from other trading partners, including potentially those in Western Europe and, and the EU that don't go along with this sort of thing. So it just highlights, in my view, how important it is to get consensus on whatever they do, because otherwise it's likely to be relatively ineffective and could wind up hurting the U.S. economy in the long term by essentially you know, knocking us out of the Russian market while others come in and, and stay for the long term. Yeah, the economic interdependence of Europe and Russia is not to be under stated and in fact we got a couple of comments from people on the last on the last pod about that very fact and just sort of underscoring the point that the harsh unprecedented you know overwhelming sanctions that the US policymakers are touting right now are going to be difficult in some ways to not only implement but to get our allies to really get on board with because it is going to do them a lot of harm as well. And in fact, I just saw a, an article today, I think it was in the New York Times, that talked about the fact that the German, the new German chancellor may be wavering a little bit on sort of how hard to come crashing down on Russia in the event that there is an invasion. So that's that certainly doesn't bode well for, I mean, the US and Germany have been pretty well aligned and in lockstep publicly on having to be sort of tough on Russia at this point on this issue. But if that is truly, if that is in fact the case, then that certainly doesn't bode well for the prospects of of sort of long-term success of this strategy of our, one of our key, if not our key ally in Europe on this issue is perhaps um, having second thoughts about how to, how to proceed. On that point, let me, let me pivot to a couple of kind of maybe kind of final issues for now on this. And obviously I'm sure we'll be back on this in a couple of weeks, but two other items to bring up. So one is uh, gas supply to to Europe, which again is one of our favorite topics. And obviously we covered this to some degree with Nord Stream 2, but there's been a lot that's being discussed on that front uh, in terms of if Russia is to is to choke off or to try to extort from Europe certain of its uh, demands by virtue of 
you know, uh, meddling with the energy supply, then what, what's going to be done about that and trying to, again, deter, take some measures and signal that there should, there will be some pain inflicted to deter that. And then the other is the idea of, um, perhaps, uh, let's call them preventative sanctions or early sanctions or prophylactic sanctions that some I know have been advocating for, at least in the US, that why don't we do something now to inflict some pain on Russia um, just for engaging in the troop buildup and, and the menacing behavior that they're behaving in at the moment. Just let me th let me kind of throw those things to you because I know we've, we've talked about these over the last few days. So maybe, a couple of thoughts on this idea of of kind of pro you know preventative or prophylactic sanctions that would be actually imposed perhaps before any kind of ultimate malign activities were to be taken by the Russians. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that talked about a ton. And in fact, you know, on CNN this morning, I saw some questions from the White House on those sorts of issues. And, and their response, I, I'm actually generally in line with what their response was, which was, you know, sanctions are supposed to be a deterrent. And so you tell you tell a country, if you behave like X, you will be sanctioned. And what we've said to Russia is if you cross that line, you will be sanctioned. If you sanction them now, then the incentive for them not to cross the line goes away. You've essentially already kind of impose the cost of crossing the line. So at that point, you know, they're in a spot where they have nothing to lose. And to be sure, you could escalate after that. But I think sanctions are most effective. And and especially as the given, you know, the logistical issues that we've talked about, it's it's going to be difficult enough to make the sanctions effective in, in any sense, um, because of all of the challenges that, that are there with respect to enforcement. So if you, you impose the sanctions now, you've imposed the cost, you've also potentially exposed some some of the weaknesses of the sanctions beforehand, and um, you've given the other side no real incentive to back down because they've already been hit with the sanctions. And it just as a purely you know rhetorical matter, at least some of the kind of the Russian media, the Russian state media that's been going on now has talked about how you know the U.S., the the bad U.S. and the bad West are really trying to cripple us with sanctions, and so you kind of play into that um, motivating rhetoric that is that is essentially driving the Russian. The, the the Russian government in terms of trying to, you know, lay the groundwork for their people for an invasion of Ukraine as almost a defensive measure. You kind of help with that 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 rhetoric by essentially striking first instead of waiting for for Russia. And and, and I I get people's you know um, desire to move fast and to impose punishment on Putin for simply creating this sort of controversy for his own reasons, which really goes against inter international norms. But I just think that there's a lot of reasons that, that the administration is smart to go slow here, because I think if you, you move too fast, you risk escalating a, con a, a conflict that otherwise you might have been able to, to, to draw down from. Yeah, one thing that is abundantly clear as well is that the U.S. government is obviously expending a tremendous amount of time, energy, effort, and resources at the moment, gaming out all kinds of contingency plans for what would what they will do or what they are willing to do if X were to happen or Y were to happen or Z were to happen with respect to, to Russia's actions um, uh, targeting Ukraine. So I think there is a lot of kind of game gaming this all out. Obviously, there are still diplomatic discussions going on at the moment that that hasn't sort of 
completely fallen apart as, as of now. Um, so that is still certainly the path that the U.S. is trying to pursue. But what is being made abundantly clear to Russia and the rest of the world is we are prepared to act if, in fact, there is uh, the red line is crossed and you know, you, 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 Mr. Putin should expect a lot of pain. Um, so, you know, again, what precisely that'll look like, it now seems that we're getting a, a little bit better picture of kind of how robust that package of, um, sanctions and export controls restrictions could be, but it's still sort of where, where we come down ultimately is going to depend on what the, what the actions are at, you know, at the end of the day, I think that is going to dictate sort of how harsh this is going to be and what it's, what's going to be targeted. Um, maybe one last, sorry, I was, go ahead. No, no, I was just, so I was just going to jump in on one of the other points that you made, which is the the gas supply. I mean, I, yeah. that, that issue also is really complicated because on the one hand, um, because it is such an important industry to Russia, it, it, um, is an obvious uh, topic for, or an obvious target for for U.S. sanctions. So, you know, we, I think we talked about it on other podcasts about the possibility of, you know, putting, you know, large Russian state-owned, you know, energy companies onto the SDN list would be a, a really significant sanction for Russia, but it also would be a really significant sanction for Europe. And so some of the talk that I've heard now is that, you know, that, that Russia might actually just cut off the supply. That is, it just, it, you know, it almost puts itself on the SDN list as a, as a way to, to make Europe feel pain by essentially cutting off transactions with Europe before, you, you know, before the U.S. cuts off transactions with it. And, and so it, it does strike me as very complicated because, you know, I think in the news today, President Biden is meeting with the emir of, of Qatar to, in, in order to get alternate supplies in, in case Russia actually does take the step of cutting off the supplies itself. So it's really very complicated in terms of what sanctions to impose and whether they would affect, they would hurt Russia more or they would play right into Russia's hand. Yeah. How the levers get pulled to achieve the objectives that are desired here is a very complicated set of questions and analyses. So I don't, I don't envy the folks that are uh, sitting in, you know, the skiffs around Washington DC trying to game all this out at the moment, because it is incredibly, uh, complicated it's it's incredibly high stakes and and it will have obviously potentially a very lasting impact on on many different aspects of um not just what's happening between russia us and russia but europe and russia and russia and china and many many of the biggest sort of global dynamics from the trade and foreign policy um standpoint are really kind of on the line here in terms of what may happen so how this plays out is going to be fascinating and and also is you know it's fraught with a lot of peril from all sides one last thing that i will mention before we move on to iran you know one thing just to go back for one second to the foreign direct product rule one thing that we i know that tim and i both experienced when we lived through this after in the wake of the huawei rule being implemented was the difficulty and in some ways the lack of preparedness on behalf of entities certainly outside the u.s to kind of wrestle with what the new rules really meant for them people who were in the supply who were in supply chain or had relationships to huawei who were um, very unclear whether or not their the nature of their relationship would potentially run afoul of the new restrictions and um you know, at the end of the day, for people who have not dug in on this, I mean, doing a foreign direct product rule analysis to understand whether or not 
a particular item could be subject to the restrictions and could now have a licensing requirement is often a very technical analysis that takes some time and takes some expertise. So to the extent that there are any, there's anybody out there who's listening to this who has any question as to whether or not this might impact them, I would certainly encourage you to start thinking about that now. And I would use obviously the Huawei blueprint as your roadmap for what might be covered if you think that you are potentially in the crosshairs on this, um, because I think this is this is being signaled very clearly as one of the one of the likely things that would the first dominoes that could fall if there is um, if there is you know incendiary action taken by Russia. So that's just a I mean this is that's kind of an obvious point, but at the same time I think something that shouldn't get lost in all of this and something that we we know all too well is a it's a difficult thing to kind of sort out and and to get comfortable with and to you know make sure that um that you're going to be you know on the staying on the right side of that because it it is it is in, in, can be incredibly complicated yeah one of the things that i'm doing you know and i know you are as well with with all of our clients is is encouraging them to review all of their russian you know uh, touch points and transactions in in order to figure out you know what they'd need to do in case you know sanctions come into play now with respect to these these sanctions that have been kind of almost directly threatened by the U.S. You've definitely got to do that, but I, I do think that you know from a uh, just a Russia writ large standpoint, if you you um, review if companies should be reviewing their Russian connections and their Russian transactions with an eye towards what if you know Russia is put under embargo or what if a bunch of the SSIs currently go onto the SDN list or what if you know the Russian oligarchs are put onto the SDN list and we have um, a, a situation like we had with with Rusal and and you know ENC plus and and those sorts of um, or EN plus that that those sorts of companies that uh, are owned by or majority owned by by Russian Russian businessmen who wind up on the oligarchs list like that is that is a something that companies ought to be thinking about because it could happen very quickly after there's an invasion I mean the US has said clearly that the second that the invasion occurs you know what they called expansive you know draconian sanctions are going to go into effect and US companies will be left to deal with them right away so they ought to be getting ready now just in case yeah, never too early to start your sort of Russia-focused risk review at this point. So I think that's the bottom line, um, which again is something that we've said and that I think everybody in the compliance world understands, but is, is bears repeating because I think there is a lot at stake here and there is going to be, in all likelihood, significant disruption to the status quo if if this does uh, take a turn for the worse here in the, in the next few weeks and months. So with that, let's leave Russia for the moment. Let's turn to another one of our favorite topics, which is Iran. And and let's dig into whether it truly is now or never for JCPOA 2.0. Tim. Got it. Um, well, we keep coming back to this topic and we keep thinking that, you know, either the JCPOA has to go into place because both sides really do want a deal because, you know, the Iranians want the trade and the U.S. wants the the nuclear security that the, the prior deal gave them. Um, but, you know, alas, uh, it has it has slipped away um, over the past year and we're a year into the Biden administration and and it looks like there's there's no deal at this point. In the last few weeks, um, 
the administration has started talking about time running out. Now, we've already talked about time running out, you know, months ago because the the length of the deal and the the benefits that each side gets are limited and so the longer that you wait to go back into the deal, the less time is left in the deal and I think the less likely it becomes. In recent, you know, recent comments from the administration suggest a matter of weeks before the the um talks end, although there have been reports now of some progress in those talks. And so, you know, although we have kind of declared several times that the JCPOA looks dead, it doesn't quite look dead yet. I think we're down to the final three weeks or so. Um, Although, who knows? Because although that's what's coming out of the U.S. administration, you know, the, the Iranians are suggesting that that's just a talking point and that that's just an artificial deadline and they're not going to be driven by artificial deadlines. So, you know, we may be close to a deal. We may not. The administration has suggested we'll know for sure within the next few weeks. Um, And I think that's probably right because I think time just for a variety of reasons and not just an artificial deadline um, is not on anyone's side if they don't cut a deal soon. But, but, um, We'll see. I, I think that the the signs out of Vienna are more positive than they've been in a while, but still, you know, no deal. A point that's been made by many, including Tim, is the fact that it seems Russia and China are committed to getting a deal done and have now leaned on the Iranians to get them to perhaps back off of some of their more unreasonable demands. And that that is perhaps what has jumpstarted this slightly more hopeful stage of the negotiations we shall see. I, I think that um, another point here that is, you know, again, bears some consideration and some thinking about is if there is a new deal, if we do have a JCPOA 2.0, what does that actually look like? Are we just, are we truly just reverting to the old deal that was, you know, now set in play, set in motion, you know, six, seven years ago, you know, a long time ago now in in the grand scheme of things, are we really going to revert back to U.S. simply lifting all of the sanctions that were reimposed throughout 2018, uh, you know, in exchange for, again, the the sort of dismantling of the, the nuclear facilities and capabilities in Iran that were pledged as part of the deal, which, of course, have been have have made significant progress over the last few years since the U.S. pulled out. So um, there's even talk about whether the European parties to the deal would potentially try to exercise their rights under you know the snapback provisions and other things because they're not getting the benefit of their bargain with Iran continuing to enrich and take steps to further their program. So you know what that looks like you know what the obviously the iranians want more relief the us wants more security a lot of other parties you know israel is still in the mix not happy with any of this wants you know sort of more maximum pressure style um sanctions imposed on iran it seems and and they're not a party to the deal but they are you know influencing uh the discussions to some degree at least through their external actions and so um yeah i think Again, we still have more questions than we have answers at this point. I do think that we wanted to, despite essentially declaring this dead, um, you know, a month and a half ago, uh, in light of the talks that it started up at the very end of December and have kind of continued on in the early part of this month, I do think it's worth kind of putting this back in focus because it does seem that uh, we might get we might get to some 
clarity on this again i know we've we sound like a broken record we've said this i don't know three or four times but it is you know the the u.s is going to risk sort of being not that not that this matters in politics or policy making but uh, that we're the country that cried wolf on this and said yep we're done and then you know the sort of you keep grabbing the uh the football away uh as you know they run up to, to try to kick so i don't know I don't know what's going to happen here, but, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see next few weeks. Two other quick comments. I mean, one of the things that I think might be a driver here is that, you know, it's it's not unrelated to Russia and it's not unrelated to global oil prices. Global oil prices are very, very high right now, which is, as everybody knows, um, and and that is that is creating, you know, political danger for the administration because no, no no politically democratically elected government um, and maybe even undemocratically elected undemocratic governments do well when the price of oil is high. And so, you know, part of the reason that the price is so high is that the supply has been deprived. uh, The world oil supply has been deprived of of Iranian oil for at least since the maximum pressure strategy went into effect. And so one, one driver could be the price of oil. A related driver is that um, if, if there is a conflict with Russia in Ukraine, um, the, the, the oil supply from Russia is likely to either, you know, be pulled back by Russia, affected by the 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 incursion or the subject of sanctions itself, and so the idea of Iranian oil starting to come back into the global economy, at least to the non-U.S. nexus part of the global economy, is probably something that is appealing to to the U.S. policymakers. Um, in the same way, I think that uh, you know. The flip side of this is I, I saw some articles talking about how maximum pressure had really greatly reduced the um, the supply of, of global oil so that the Iranian oil in the, the world's oil supply has really dried up since maximum pressure. And the way that the article was written, it was as though that was a big success story of maximum pressure. And I guess if the goal of sanctions is to drive down the supply of a particular oil um, from a from a sanctioned country, then yeah, it was a success. But my understanding was that the point of sanctions was to stop their nuclear program. And in that sense, it was a massive failure because the fact is, is that, and I don't think there's any dispute about that, Iran is way, way closer to building a nuclear bomb than it was uh, when, we, when we backed out of the Iran deal, when we backed out of the JCPOA and started putting this maximum pressure on. So yeah, if the goal was to dry up Iranian oil sales, that maximum pressure did pretty well. If the goal was to actually stop Iran's nuclear program, it was a, a massive failure. And so that also, in my mind, explains why it is that there's pressure to get back into the deal, because we can dry up the Iranian oil supply all we want with sanctions, but it didn't stop them from getting the bomb. And so if we really want to stop them from getting the bomb, getting back into the deal may be the best way to go. Yeah, I guess the counter argument would be that it's it's that pain of the depri- depriving them of revenue that has at least brought us back to a point where they're willing to even discuss this. But I think that the counterpoint to that would be exactly what you said, which is now they're just emboldened feeling like they should ask for more because they've kind of weathered the storm or at least have relatively speaking weathered the storm. They're not, I don't think there's any, there's any um, narrative that would suggest that uh, the Iranian economy is thriving at the moment, but um, you know, can, all things considered, it is it is kind of hanging on and and perhaps could hang on for some time longer, even if even if there is no deal reached. So so we shall see. But uh, it, we wanted to kind of put that back into focus um, for everybody because 
um, this is one that we we certainly hear from people about pretty regularly in terms of what is going to happen, what will this mean, um, and um, I think we have to keep a close watch on that along with along with Russia and Ukraine. So um, that brings us to topic number three, our last main topic for today, which is um, DOJ's China initiative and wanted to talk about kind of two aspects of this, starting with um, what was a pretty, um, you know, look, I will, I will caveat by saying, as anybody who listens knows, this is the, my former um, colleagues in the National Security Division sort of oversee the China initiative and oversee the investigation and prosecution of the criminal statutes that are kind of part of the China initiative push, including the cases that have been brought, have been brought against so-called non-traditional collectors, which for those out there who don't know what that means, just means not trained intelligence officers who are deployed to various countries to obtain information, obtain valuable technology and, and bring it back or send it back to the home country. Uh, and that's exactly what um, we had in the news recently, which is, um, the case against the MIT professor, um, who, which was just dis dismissed. Um, this is Gong Chen, uh, and that was just dismissed about a week ago. And this is a pretty, and so for those who weren't tracking this too closely, he, he was not charged. This is all relating to what were alleged to be material omissions on grant applications to the DOE, essentially. That's what it all boils down to. And the idea that he did not disclose ties and funding that he had with certain aspects of the Chinese government and Chinese um, entities and that and foreign bank accounts and the like. And so that's that's a oversimplification, but that's essentially what it boils down to is he was charged with wire fraud, failing to disclose an, an F, uh, file an FBAR for a foreign bank account, uh, false statements. That was that was the sum total of what he was charged with, um, or what he was indicted on. And that case was dismissed in whole because apparently in the course of the post-indictment follow-up that DOJ was doing, they spoke to folks at the Energy Department who confirmed that they would not have expected him to disclose any of these things and therefore they couldn't really have been considered material because they wouldn't have impacted um, just the way that the grant application process was set up. Um, that's just not information that was necessarily called for. So he wasn't necessarily hiding anything or trying to obscure the fact that he had these ties. And in any event, they wouldn't have necessarily changed the outcome of the application process is, is sort of Again, I'm I'm oversimplifying, but that's essentially what it boils down to. Um, and so um, the case was just dismissed. Um, in this is a case brought up in, Mass in district court in Massachusetts. New U.S. attorney came in. They looked at the case and they just um, they just dismissed. So I think that what I want to highlight here is a couple things, and then I'll throw it to Tim. So the if you look at um, if you first of all. The priorities of DOJ's China Initiative, as they are set out, and they're still on the website. I went yesterday to look, and they're still there. It is still technically, um, you know, in force, being pursued every day by the good folks at DOJ. Um, although there have been some, at least, um, anonymous confirmations that they may be kind of folding up the tent or rebranding the initiative in some way. If you look at everything under there, which is, you know, combating economic espionage, 
ensuring that sensitive technologies are not, you know, stolen or exported illegally back to China from the United States, using our using the CFIUS process to protect U.S. interests and in sensitive technologies and critical infrastructure, et cetera. Those things are not going to change. Those things have have been the policy of the U.S. government and the and DOJ. Those things are going to remain at the forefront of what certainly the National Security Division is doing with respect to China every day. There's and I don't think that any of those are particularly controversial goals either. And if you look at the laundry list of cases that have been brought in service of of those goals, they, it is lengthy and. Um, I don't think you would find too many people that would uh, say that that is uh, all that problematic or surprising from a U.S. Uh, national security and sort of law enforcement uh, interest perspective. I think what is probably going to change is certainly, again, there's signals that the whole program, this initiative is perhaps going to be jettisoned and it's going to be kind of taken down to a, a at a slightly lower register um, this idea of non-traditional collectors that I mentioned at the outset, and, and this is something that I can attest to the fact is something that has been talked about and an interest of law enforcement and the national security apparatus in, in the U.S. for a long time, um, not just with respect to China, with respect to other countries, but I think it, it, it sort of ends up being, um, China ends up being the, the sort of poster child for this, for this issue or this phenomenon. Um, these are hard cases to investigate. They're hard cases to prove. They're hard cases to charge. Um, there is, I think, as evidenced by what you saw in this most recent case with uh, Gong Chen, um, you know, the the proof that the U.S. that the government thought they had just it just fell apart. They didn't have the they didn't have the willfulness evidence. They didn't have the intent evidence. And then at the end of the day, when they got a better look at all the pieces, they realized that they were just off base in um, in how they were interpreting the facts. And I think that that is, if there's any lesson, I think that that might be the lesson, which is when there is a, a clear narrative that the government and DOJ are looking to feed to some degree, which is, and if you look back at the press conference from when uh, Professor Chen was charged is, you know, this case comes down to loyalty to China at the, you know, sort of at the expense of his, what should have been his loyalty to his new, you know, his new country. He's a, he was a naturalized U.S. citizen. He's a U.S. citizen, naturalized U.S. citizen, uh, and his obligations in, you know, pursuing grant money from federal agencies essentially is kind of what it, how it was kind of, again, encapsulated. And that's a very tidy narrative that, um, you know, look, it, it, it is applicable. It does it, it is correct in some cases. It just appears that it was wildly off base in this case. And when you know DOJ has to suffer kind of a black eye in this regard, and again, I'm biased here. I know some of the people that were involved in this case. Uh, you know, th they're good, reasonable, level-headed people who are not trying to uh, sort of sandbag anybody. So even people who are trying to do it right get it wrong sometimes. I mean, that's just a reality of it. And the costs are incredibly higher and incredibly incredibly dire when it comes to what has now happened to this person's life and his liberty for the last year. Um, you know, I think that does warrant some reevaluation as to whether those are the type of cases, the, those that class of cases is really what we want to be devoting the resources to and the effort to um, in the long term. I think it's it's worthy of further discussion and scrutiny. And I, 
in some ways tip my cap to DOJ to at least admitting that they're willing to sort of reevaluate this and think about how they want to do things going forward. Again, I don't think that you're going to see at the end of the day a jettison, you know, that they jettison sort of all of the goals of the China initiative. I think they are very much here to stay for the most part, but with this area in particular, um, when there, you know, is not even an accusation in the indictment that there was, you know, sort of a theft of trade secrets or a, an illegal export of control technology or or items or or um, or software, then I think those are just those are just very difficult cases. They're very very difficult cases, and this kind of theory and this approach that has been taken in some of these cases, which has resulted already in some in some pleas and some um, some sent custodial sentences, uh, you know, I, I question whether that's going to continue or not. So that's kind of a small picture, big picture view of the whole thing. Um, obviously, let me let me kick it over to, to Tim to, to sort of chime in here as well. So so I have some some relatively strong thoughts on this. I mean, yes. first, I know you, you do. Know, the, I know you do. Yes. So, so first, you know, let me just start by saying that the goals of the China initiative, the stated goals, that is like stopping economic espionage by China, um, are really important and, and they are a real problem. But when you, but there are, in my view, you know, big problems with uh, focusing on an initiative like this in terms of resources and in terms of focus from the get-go. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but you have to do it in a really careful way, in part, especially when it's focused on a particular country. And then the the defendants often seem to be people of who uh, who who have some you know ties to those country in terms of nationality. That that it strikes me that when you're going to have an initiative, the problem with initiatives is that you have an initiative, and you're going to need to show results. So you're going you to need to get pleas. You're going to need to get convictions. And 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 so you know there's a this push to get results in that particular area that I think is problematic. I, I don't think I'm again I'm not saying it's always it means you shouldn't always do it, but you need to be really careful with it. And then when you kind of add this twist where you're you're potentially focusing on nationals of a particular country or or former nationals of a particular country, um, you 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 really do need to be extra careful in that area and and i think that you know the the facts of this case but not just this case kind of other cases show kind of what can go wrong if you're not careful and and what i mean by that is you know first of all a press conference where you're essentially accusing this guy and all he's been charged with is kind of not disclosing things to the doe he wasn't charged with being a spy he wasn't charged with economic espionage and you accuse a guy who's been a citizen of the united states for 20 years of not being loyal to the united states because he filed an, a, a grant application that you didn't think was complete is problematic in and of itself and doesn't show a sensitivity to these kind of potential discrimination issues that could arise in this sort of initiative. But second of all, it's not an economic espionage case. Like, why is this part of the China initiative? It's a, you know, at best a failure to disclose things on a grant application type case, which is not really unique to China or anywhere else. I mean, if you think that there's not full disclosure, fine. And I guess the the claim was that he didn't disclose his ties to China. But, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't the sort of case that really should have been part of this initiative. And it seems like a case that was brought in a way because they thought they could make that prosecution because it, the evidence was entirely within their possession, as opposed to an economic espionage case that often has links to China that are much more difficult to investigate. And so so I really do think that it, that, that sort of prosecution does 
uh, you know, the fact that it's there, and 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 let me also, you know, give a shout out to Rachel Rollins, who's the the new U.S. Attorney in 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 the District of Massachusetts, who was previously the the, the elected prosecutor for Suffolk County, who really, you know to her credit, came in and, and ordered a review of this after they found out that the, you know, the Department of Energy really wasn't backing up their case and did a very brave thing by dismissing this case because everybody gets a black eye when they dismiss a case like this. And being willing to take that is what, you know, the hard sort of decisions that the good prosecutors, you know, can and, and should and here did make. So, you know, I, this is not a like an anti-prosecution statement from this, but it's it's a statement from me that really you need to be careful with these cases and and i i think that it warrants a reconsideration of the program and if they're going to keep the program it, they really need to be tighter with their focus on real economic espionage cases and not trying to kind of chalk up wins on you know thousand and one violations or failure to disclose violations that really don't have anything to do with economic espionage and very very sensitive to the idea that you know pro- focusing on china um, is not very far removed from focusing on Chinese nationality. And I'm not saying they did that here, but I just don't think they were sensitive to those sorts of perceptions. And I think that's part of what allowed this case to get kind of out of control. And really, you know, the MIT talked about all the harm that had been done to the to the defendant in this case and to his family and to the, it's, they called it the entire MIT scientific community. And I, I think that it does warrant a revisiting of this policy, even though, as I mentioned at the beginning, and as I know you agree, the, the the goal behind this policy ex, is extremely important, and we need to figure out a way to do it, but we have to do better. Yeah, and I think just as a well said, and I think as a um, I think as a uh, as a final note, I would just say that you know the thing that uh, I come back to, and that you know obviously as a former prosecutor, but now as a on the defense side. Um, I think about a lot is the idea of, and Tim, this is really what Tim was alluding to, was the idea of um, charging decisions. And I mean, these are, and I can attest to the fact that being on the inside, these are things that are heated, d- debated with a lot of, um, you know, heated discussions between various actors and factions within the Justice Department. And I'm, I, I have no doubt that that was the case here and has been the case with some of these similar the kind of grant application, false statement, um, you know, type of cases that don't rise to the level of, look, there was an, ego, an illegal export. There was there was there was theft and economic espionage on behalf of China. There was, you know, the the sort of higher order, perhaps, um, you know, easier to see, easier to feel like this is a righteous prosecution type cases. These are essentially a class of cases that was almost created as a as a outgrowth of this initiative or a precursor to this initiative um and an emphasis that was only recently kind of identified and that's not to say again that this is not necessarily an area that is worthy of further scrutiny and intervention perhaps by by doj and the government to protect u.s interests but as tim said it has to be done very very carefully and it's nobody's ever going to have it 100 percent right um, you, you know, we can't expect that of anybody. And to Tim's point, when it calls for reevaluation and reassessment and somebody is, you know, uh, strong enough to stand up and say, look, we, we got this one wrong. We got to We're going to dismiss, we're moving on. And, you know, that's, that's the right thing to do, obviously, but, um, it's hard. It's a very hard thing. And it's a hard thing to sort of, um, balance that out going forward. And I know that one way that tends to, 
what tends to happen in these circumstances, and I'm sure as they reevaluate what they want the initiative to be going forward, this may happen is that there ends up being you know, more oversight and more approvals and more uh, layers that have to come in so that some of the, um, you know, you take the decision-making authority out of the hands of one or two people and you put it into 10 people or you, you rest it at a much higher level with somebody who then has to take into account some of these sensitivities that perhaps are not going to be front of mind for somebody who is uh, much closer to the, to the case and the investigation. And so I suspect that that is, already happening and has been happening and will be happening going forward. And um, we, we shall see how um, how this plays out uh, going forward. But again, also worth thinking about in the broader sense, as we have talked about the China Initiative previously, which is, again, in the way that export controls and sanctions laws are going to be enforced vis-a-vis -vis China and that CFIUS is going to do its job in reviewing uh, transactions that have some connection to China and economic espionage of sensitive technology and information is going to work with respect to, to um, you know, again, if China is the beneficiary or the intended beneficiary, the, these things are all to some degree intermingled. But as Tim said, I think there has to be, there has to be some dividing lines and there has to be, um, you know, look, tough calls that have to be made. But I think that it is not necessarily a failure to look into a case and then say, look, we just don't have enough to charge this person. I mean, that is a hard thing to do. Uh, and the momentum, once it gets going, is difficult to stop sometimes. But that is the right thing to do in many cases. And so, you know, as attorneys on the outside, we don't get involved most of the time until the charging decision has been made. But sometimes we do and, and sort of trying to, you know, provide context and provide more, um, you know, arguments on behalf of our clients to hopefully get the prosecutors to understand the, the bigger picture so that we don't end up in this situation where you spend, you know, a year, a year of a man's life as he was under indictment and under this black cloud. And, and now, um, you know, it's all, it all gets taken away, but it'll never get taken away in other ways. So th these are, these are serious issues again, from this specific case, more broadly speaking, it's something that's kind of, I think, that Tim and I feel very strongly about and have thought a lot about and have, you know, devoted a lot of time to over the years is kind of thinking through these issues on both sides. And so that's why we want to spend a little time talking about it here at the end of the end of the pod today. So well said. Well said. I mean, so, a brave decision should happen more. Yeah. So with that, uh, let's let's um, wrap that one up and we will move on to um, a couple of final topics in the lighting round. And with that. Let's go back to Helms Burton, which is a and Cuba, which is a obviously a favorite topic of ours as well, which we haven't talked about in a while, and in particular the summary judgment proceedings that are going on in the Havana Docks lawsuit against the four large cruise lines, and in particular, just to set this up, and we're not going to spend a tremendous amount of time on this, um, you know, lots of different arguments being made as to why this case should end right now uh, by the defendants, but I think in particular. Looking at um, prior OFAC authorizations and other U.S. government authorizations as a basis to um, protect the conduct that's essentially at issue here, I think is a is a fascinating um, thread of this, and that's kind of what we wanted to touch on. So I'll throw it to Tim for that. Yeah. So uh, you know, as as you said, Brian, uh, during the Trump administration, Title III was activated. Title III of the Helms-Burton Act it actually had laid dormant since it was passed in 1996 because it required the president to essentially 
bring it to life. And President Trump in, in I think, 2018 brought it to life and lawsuits were filed. And what, one of the things that Title III um, allows civil liability for or imposes civil liability for is uh, for trafficking in, um, in confiscated Cuban property. And so uh, the lawsuit against the the um, cruise lines is that they were trafficking in uh, the Cuban port in the Havana port, um, which the plaintiffs claim was confiscated by the Cuban government from them. Now there is a dispute in that case over that, or at least um, you know that is one of the, the the contested issues in those that case is whether or not there really was a, a confiscation because the defendants at least claim that the Cuban government always owned the port. And so when the Cuban government changed, it's not confiscation to take property from the Cuban government and keep it for the Cuban government. But but setting that issue aside, the OFAC issue is kind of interesting because um, because one of the there is a provision of of Helms-Burton that does allow for an exception to the Title III that allows uh, that that essentially creates a you know, no pun intended, but safe harbor for, um, for, for it, it is good a one. safe harbor provision. I don't even one. know how to say it, but it's a safe harbor for, um, <laughs> for, for, for U.S. persons that are engaged in lawful travel to Cuba. And so, so one of the arguments from the cruise line is that, of course, we're engaged in lawful travel. We were authorized by OFAC to go make these, these trips to Havana. They knew we were going to Havana. We had a I think they were traveling under the general license to go to Havana, um, but they were authorized by OFAC, and so therefore they fit within the safe harbor for lawful travel to Cuba. And so, if you're, you know, engaging in lawful travel to Cuba, you can't be trafficking in confiscated Cuban property. It's an interesting argument, and it, it sounds right to me. I mean, I, I, I have to admit, when I first looked at it, I was a little bit skeptical because, um, you know. OFAC authorized you to travel to Cuba. It didn't authorize you to traffic in confiscated property. And so to the extent that you are trafficking in confiscated property, that would seem to be, you know, not a defense to say, well, OFAC, let me do it because I'm certain that if you look at the general license or if they had a specific license, it doesn't say that they can traffic it, that as part of the license, they can traffic in confiscated property. But given the safe harbor provision in, this, in the law, I think it's a pretty interesting question and one that they, they might win on, um, you know, because if there is this lawful travel to Cuba exception, then they seem to fit within it if, they, if they're authorized by OFAC to travel to Cuba. Yeah, for the, it's an, there's an interesting point in the brief uh, from the defendants that sort of calls out the fact that, well, look, the GL didn't specify where in Cuba we could engage in, you know, carrier services with respect, you know, in terms of, you know, providing the travel services that they were providing to customers going to Cuba. Uh, and so, and they in fact point out that President Obama himself announced all of this initially from Havana. And so one must conclude that, that that's not sort of off limits and was otherwise part of that authorization. Um, there's also a few other just really interesting tidbits in there about, you know, a couple of the a couple of the cruise lines tried to get specific licenses and were told no, you don't need specific licenses. BIS also had similar authorizations. DHS via CBP had similar authorizations in terms of calling at Cuban ports and being able to return to U.S. ports thereafter. So there was an entire regulatory mechanism that was set up here to allow for this, obviously, back when the rules were relaxed for a few years and. It is uh, one point that was brought up apparently at, uh, in the brief Senate oral argument was the idea that for plaintiffs to claim that 
that's not good enough, that, that you're not able to sort of rely upon a duly authorized um, pronouncement from the U.S. government by OFAC or by these other agencies that is clearly granting you permission to, you know, act in a certain way consistent with the law and the regulations, that you really need to bring an APA challenge to that if that's your problem. And it's not, you know, trying to litigate that as part of this private Helms-Burton Title III lawsuit is just not the right place to do that. And so it'll be fascinating to see. We kind of wanted to just flag this one for people because it's been a while since we've talked about I think this actually I think we've talked about this particular lawsuit before at a very early stage because this is one of the this is really the one that's been the most active quite frankly there has not been much I know that like John Bolton and many others were sort of licking their chops expecting that you know the Cuban uh government and all those who uh benefited from uh the um you know seizing of property by the Cuban government were going to really rue rue the day they did that and be subject to all these lawsuits but they haven't really amounted to much in the last couple of years and this is um this is really one of the, to my knowledge sort of the the one of the last ones that's still kind of kicking around and if if the defendants succeed at um uh, you know getting this knocked out at summary judgment which they certainly might um that may be kind of the end of this saga of course um you know so we shall see we'll keep Keep an eye on that. We'll see what, what we expect. You know, obviously there'll be a ruling on this in the in the in the coming months, and and I'm sure we'll kind of circle back to it again. But but an interesting issue and one the one that would bear I think further discussion depending on the kind of ruling we get as to um, you know what that might portend for future uh, reliance upon <laughs> general licenses and other and other changes to the regs that the government is um, is doing, especially when it's kind of a you know, a pretty significant change. Um, obviously, the the sort of trap door of Title III of Helms-Burton doesn't exist with respect to most U.S. sanctions programs. So this may have some limited applicability, uh, kind of more broadly speaking, but still kind of a fascinating exercise to look at this and think about how it could possibly impact other things coming down the road. So that's really all I wanted to cover on, on the Havana, Havana Docs case. And then the final um, the final thing that we wanted to mention the lightning round and for the pod today, which is late breaking. So we haven't, um, we haven't had a ton of time to sort of sit with this, but I think it's, it's worth flagging and, and it's in line with some, with other items like this that we've talked about in the past, which is earlier today, um, just a couple of hours before we started recording, um, there was a joint, um, there was a joint uh, advisory that was issued across just about every agency of the U.S. government, state, treasury, commerce, labor, homeland security, and um, USTR, if I'm not mistaken, um, that is uh, targeted at um, highlighting risks and considerations for businesses and individuals uh, with dealings uh, in Burma, and in particular with dealings uh, with entities that are um, obviously responsible for the coup or that are benefiting from or connected to those individuals and those entities. And so in, in consistent with what we have seen with respect to Hong Kong uh, advisory, with respect to Xinjiang, with respect to some of these other advisories, this is kind of a, again, a sort of neat little branding effort to kind of tie up in a nice little bow all of the various elements of compliance concerns that one could have from a U.S. perspective with respect to Burma, 
essentially. And it, it not coincidentally, I'm sure this is just about on the one year anniversary of the coup. Um, we are just days away from the one year anniversary. So I'm sure that this was, um, again, time to coincide with that as some of these other events have been time to coincide with um, other notable um, events in those jurisdictions as well. And it essentially goes through a lot of the elements that we've talked about with respect to the executive order 14014 that's targeted at Burma, that set up the Burma, the current Burma sanctions program. Um, that's targeted at some of the key industries there that are impacted, whether it's state-owned entities, it's gems and precious metals, it's real estate, it's financial sector, um, all of the things that where where um, designations to date under the program have really been targeted, that have been identified as major sources of revenue for the military, um, and also, of course, highlighting the idea that sort of AML and CTF considerations in terms of any dealings with the financial sector there, um, in particular in the real estate industry, which is known to be kind of a money laundering mechanism in Burma, um, are people are well aware of. And again, it's just sort of a nice, neat encapsulation of all that in one um, place that is a handy kind of compliance tool or awareness tool for those that are not already um, keen to this. Um, forced labor is another aspect here that I think gets gets highlighted as well, both on the DHS and the Department of Labor side. So also worth noting. I think that for the most part, I will say that from my experience, my clients who have had dealings with Burma are sort of well on top of this and have been tracking this very closely since a year ago and have made adjustments to their own um, risk tolerance and their own dealings with Burma um, already. So I think that for the most part, this seems to be an issue that is well understood. But again, notable that on the eve of the one year anniversary of the coup, that this is coming out. And again, as an awareness tool, as a branding mechanism, as a, a general, uh, you know, kind of a, um, effort by the USG to kind of bring this to a, a perhaps a higher level of visibility globally. Um, just something that, again, hot off the presses that we that just came out today that we wanted to just flag for everybody really quickly. Yeah, I mean, any any company that has business in Burma should be taking a look at this. I think it's a handy guide. I think it does a good job with, especially in the the final appendix of really chronicling all of the the many additional risks that have arisen from doing business in Burma since the the coup in February of of 2021. Um, I mean, I will say, you know, one of the things that I think uh, is is it's in there very briefly, but but I think they probably could have expanded on a little bit more. I, I, it, they added the the Commerce Department added um, Burma to the list of countries that um, many goods can't be given to military and users and uh, military end uses, or that exports of, of goods on Supplement Two to Part Seven Forty Four can't be sent to those sorts of um, entities. And given the fact that there was a military coup and that there are a lot of um, industries that are state-owned, I do think that that is a complex question that is one that um, could arise a lot because the definition of military end user, as we've talked about here, mostly in relation to China, is very broad. And so my guess is, and I actually haven't had it come up in my practice yet, but my guess is if you tried to look at particular entities in Burma that uh, had some relationship to the government, that they may well qualify as military end users, given that the government now is the military. 
Yeah, I've actually, that's a really, really good point. And I have had this come up a couple times in the last nine months since they got put on the, since they got added to that um, portion of the regs. And in, and in particular, I think it came as a, it came as a surprise to certain companies that perhaps if they were exporting certain items that were subject to certain ECCNs that, that they were going to need a license to do that now, if they were, or arguably would need a license to do that now, depending on who the ultimate end user was going to be in Burma. Um, I think that is for whatever reason it, it is not, I think because the China, Russia, Venezuela aspect of the rule um, dominates, it seems in terms of public perception, at least Burma gets forgotten. I've, I've probably edited more times than I'd like to remember um, language in certain, uh, you know, end use certifications and other things to add Burma into the, to that recitation because it does get forgotten or it's, it's not been updated uh, time in a timely way. So that's a really good point and, and is, is one to uh, certainly bear in mind for anybody out there who might be doing any business that does touch on Burma is that you do need to sort of know ultimately where that's going and be well aware that if you're if you are dealing in any goods that are subject to the ECCNs covered on supplement two that you need to you need to be very very careful of that and make sure that it's it's gonna be uh appropriately authorized. Yep. No, it's a big issue. I I've had it in China all the time, but Burma is one that yeah, I Yeah, less so in less so in Burma, yeah. but I have actually had it come up in Burma a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, so yeah. I, I was surprised they didn't expand on it because it is one yeah. of the big things that they that, that that is, you know, new and uh very difficult from a compliance standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be interested to know kind of what the data would be in terms of how much business is actually being cut off by virtue of that new wrinkle in the rule or the extension of the MEU rules to, to them. I don't know. It's, that's a hard thing to have data on, I think, unfortunately. And, um, you know, we've said this with respect to China and Russia, certainly, um, you know, it's just a, it's not a well understood, I think, um, you know, data set ultimately. And so how you, and, and, and to your point, because the rules are a little murky and because it's kind of a very fact dependent question about what is a military end use, what is a military end user, I think it's hard to know uh, precisely sort of how many transactions or even pot potential transactions could have been impacted by that. Yep. No, totally agree. But, yeah. you know, it was a good good guide. Very handy. Yeah. Thank, thank Agreed. You. Thank you to the multi-agency um, effort. Yeah. Thank you to anybody who worked on that over their holiday break um, yep. to get that done as we've uh, talked about in the past. So, um, so with that, we'll end on that. Uh, that is our show for today. Um, this will be up early, very beginning of February in all likelihood. Um, so we will be back mid February with another episode. I think Tim maybe won't have to wear a, um, a, um, a hat for the next one because I think he may be South of the border at that point. So, um, you know, not that it'll be much warmer here, but certainly won't be negative 27. I think when we're, I'll wear my, I'll wear my nationals cap for the next week. There you go. There you go. That's a little more like it. So, um, so to everybody, thank you out there, uh, for listening and until next time, hope everybody stays safe and stay sanctions free. Stay sanctions free, everybody. Thanks everyone. Bye. This podcast was produced by HeartCast Media.